Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Cinematics. I'm Ryan. And I'm Mike. And on today's episode, we will be doing the first in an ongoing series of uh, Canadian content, classic Canadian films on every third uh, week of the month. Uh, today we're starting with the, uh, the 1997 classic, The Sweet Hereafter. So The Sweet Hereafter was directed by Adam Agoyan. It was also uh, adapted from an original novel written by Russell Banks, uh, by Adam Agoyan, who adapted the screenplay himself. Uh, it was shot for estimated $5 million. There's some leeway there, as there always is, in budget on IMDb and things like that. But they say about $5 million to shoot it. Uh, it was based on a true story that was set in Texas in uh, 1989, a bus crash in Texas, um, but transplanted and almost exclusively filmed in Merritt, British Columbia, a little bit in Ontario, uh, also starring almost exclusively Canadian cast for the most part. There's a couple exceptions, but for the most part, everybody in that cast list was either born or raised in Canada, which is super cool. Uh, and it was also, fun fact, the first Canadian film to win the Grand Prix at the Cannes Film Festival, uh, as well as taking two other uh, jury prizes at that same festival and getting nominated for the Palme d'Or, which is pretty solid uh, commendations all around. Um, it was nominated for Best Director and Best Screenplay based on material previously produced and published at the proper Oscars. And the Genie Awards, now called the Canadian Film Awards, uh, or kind of seen a little bit as Canadian Oscars in a way, uh, it had 14 nominations and 7 wins, and overall uh, 56 award nominations and 33 award wins across a multitude of award uh, uh, systems and festivals around the world, some in Europe, some in Australia, some in the States, and in Canada. Um very well critically received, although not super well received in the box office. Uh, Mike, you want to lead us off with uh, your context for where you first saw the film? Yeah, I actually was thinking about that. I'm not sure exactly when I saw it, because from kind of 1997 on, this is a fairly like omnipresent movie when, when the term Canadian films get brought up. Certainly from the English language side of Canadian films, this is, I mean, many consider it, would consider it top three, top five uh, English language Canadian films all time. It certainly hits a lot of lists. Yeah. Um, I think TIFF, in fact, like in 2016 or something, had it at number three all time. And that was English and French language oh, wow. Canadian films. Um, but it, it uh, so it, it was a big deal when it came out. Like uh, that was right around the time I was in my, like, you know, I was 14, 13, uh, when it came out and, um, a little older than that, but it was when I was just starting to get like starting to watch the Oscars every year with my family and that kind of thing. And so this was for like a modern context in the same way people have been going nuts over, uh, the Emmy and golden globe nominations for, uh, Schitt's Creek. This, this was that type of deal. This would like, 
oh my gosh, a, an independent Canadian film has gotten Oscar, like is going to the, <laughs> it's, it's not. And then it got, and then I remember it was a massive deal because it got snubbed for best picture, even though all the other best directors that year were nominated for best picture. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the first time I saw this, it, we rented it as a family and watched it. And um, I remember kind of appreciating it, but also not quite understanding it. And I wasn't too familiar with a fractured narrative film structure. Um, prior to this, maybe only I would have only have seen Pulp Fiction or I can't think of too many other films that I would have seen that had like a, like Tarantino was doing it. He's doing it. There's a few others in the 90s that were doing kind of a, a, a broken film narrative, um, a, a mixed up film narrative for the yeah, lack of yeah. a better uh, term. Um, and so that, I remember that confusing me. It took me a while when I was watching it. I don't think my parents understood what was going on at all. Um, but I remember us all being affected by it, which is kind of more, says more about the film than if we all understood it first time through and loved it or didn't love it or whatever. But the fact that like none of us really understood it, but we are all affected by what we had just seen. I think a lot to its power. Yeah. And, and because if this you know if art or high art is like is the is the study or representation of human emotion and and it's b- both its projection but also its um its ability to um evoke that within people then this is that that like this is both a study in human emotion but also provokes i think human emotion from the audience and i i think it's that conversation of emotions that is what makes this film both powerful and lasting for a lot of people that see it yeah 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 i i think i agree and i think that actually leads really well into my context for it funnily enough um which is that when i i i watched this wasn't the first adam mcgoyan movie i watched uh the first one i saw was exotica and i watched it when i was in uh, at the University of Calgary doing my bachelor's degree in English, I started taking a minor in film studies when I started thinking maybe that was kind of the direction I wanted to head. Um, and I had to take a class in Canadian cinema and Exotica was a movie that was shown kind of on top of the list of like best Canadian directors and sort of iconic Canadian movies. And I remember thinking how much I really liked, and I was one of the few people in that class who really liked that movie uh, I think a lot of people couldn't deal with the discomfort of how awful all those characters are and how blatant and uh, open all of the like shitty, weird, uncomfortable things that happen are in that in that movie. Um, but I remember being really interested in that because I was I've always been drawn to storytelling because of that kind of uh, that kind of struggle, that internal idea of, everybody has these shitty dark secrets and thoughts and things that they don't want anybody to know as a part of their personality. And so they have a face that is their public persona and the person they want to be known to be. And then there's the person in their head that has the weird thoughts that they snub after they have them that everybody just pops into your head sometimes. And uh, I felt like Exotica really took that internal monologue externally uh, in a very blatant way. And so I started looking for more of his movies. And the next one that popped up was a sweet hereafter. 
And I thought, huh, well, this seems entirely different, but sure, why not? We'll give it a try. So I watched it af pretty closely after that class uh, and tried to approach it in this sort of critical view. And I remember being a little bit surprised at how much the same but also different it is. Like, everybody sucks in this movie in some way or another. All the characters are, m most of the characters are really shitty and do horrible things but it's less overt it's less hard to observe because it's not in your face like exotica is and it's more forgiving because so many of those characters who have these flaws and these things they're doing that you can't condone you also empathize because you understand why they're doing it uh for the most part i'm not about to condone some of the behaviors of certain people in this uh movie and there's certain levels of discomfort there but it's less a predominant theme and more a, a thing that exists in the story to serve a bigger purpose. Um, and so that was kind of why I ended up being excited to watch it. And I know this one, we, we usually pick the Canadian movies together. Um, but when we started talking about which Adam McGoin movie, I really wanted this one because it's easier viewing for people who are less... Um, inclined to be watching uncomfortable movies but it still fits into that vein of anti-hero kind of shitty character struggle that i love so much well and it also goes to um you mentioned in the in the opening there about um the amount of canadian actors in this and uh exotica um one of the brilliant casting choices he made in in uh in that was sarah polly mm -hmm. um because so she that was her first and this is my memory i didn't research this so sarah polly is like has been a staple literally in my life all my life wow i i mean so i was born in the early 80s and uh, i think 1980 late 80s she's on a kids tv show called ramona playing the the title role ramona and it's a it was the, the, it's this famous children's character Ramona Quibley Ramona anyways it's a like kids books and there's lots of them and these were the continued adventures of that and uh, so that was like a kids show that I watched and then um, the CBC had done right around the same time like eighty seven eighty eight had done a mini series called Return to Green Gables the sequel. And it was like an Anne of Green Gables sequel, which was very successful, but only like a mini series, so like four or five episodes. So then they put into production a new series called Road to Avonlea, which is a takes place in the Green Gables universe by modern <laughs> modern parlance, uh, but isn't actually about uh, Anne. Um, so Anne Anne Shirley is not in it. Uh, in fact, uh, but who plays the title role of that? is Sarah Polly and in, so Anne is about like an orphan girl who goes to a farm and gets adopted by this family and grows up in Green Gables this is about a like so it's a fish out of water story in that way this is the fish out of water story by it being a upper class rich girl going to a small farm community and so like the prissy big city girl has to fit into like the farm community right okay okay and it was a very popular show it ran for seven years but after five years sarah polly left the show um so she's like this is her in her in her teen years from like 12 to 15 or 16 or something like that or i guess it's not quite that because she was 18 when she did this in in was uh, she 
Yeah, she's okay. eighteen. She's eighteen, playing fifteen in this movie. She plays it well. It was super uncomfortable yeah. how young she looked in that. Uh. But it's so, and her role in Exotica is she's the she's the niece slash babysitter, but not babysitter because he doesn't have kids. <laughs> in exotica it was brilliant casting for her because and it, it's the same, like very much the, a similar response in this which is that she has a look of innocence and because she was on this like massively canadian cbc show as like a kid and people quote unquote watched her grow up she was this she was canada's darling right, right. and then yeah, yeah. and then she shows up in this movie about uh, sexual deviance a little bit and a little bit about like, you know, uh, yeah, uh, like uh, like about yeah. So I don't want we 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 would have to discuss that movie if yeah we we should not get too deeply into that because we may at some point come back yeah. to that movie. But but good enough to say that it's a movie about sexual deviance and she becomes sort of in the way that Miley Cyrus broke out of her young girl image she by making wrecking ball and yeah. basically being naked on in a music video she is breaking out a little bit from this and it's not quite the same because it's different industries it's different everything else but it's got i don't know it was an analogy i guess no I felt. I, i'm right there with you so yeah no I, to I totally felt that and then so that and that also plays to this and that um and the first time we see her in the movie she's on stage singing and she's singing it uh, it's her voice really that really did the cover of the tragically hip song Courage. Yeah, yeah she's actually doing all of that which by the way i i mean and now maybe i'm biased because i just adore the tragically hip and i love that song but it was just so perfect in this movie honestly just a a piece of well-known iconic canadian culture but also the content of the lyrics and talking about courage and things felt really appropriate to the movie yeah, absolutely, and and the the line "courage couldn't come at a worse time" yeah. is very applicable to the <laughs> final. Considering she finally stands up for herself and and gets her revenge, and it's at a time when it's not just impacting the shittiest of people, but a lot of people. A lot of people get affected by that yeah. exactly, and we'll we'll get into that uh, the final courtroom scene oh, if, or will. the deposition. Um, but yeah, I guess so. First, though, I had a couple questions for you. Uh, but but um, so essentially, I wanted to I wanted to clarify some timeline stuff. Yeah, that's going to be important. And I also, I wanted to clarify who, in your opinion, who do you think whose movie is this? Who's the protagonist? Uh, but let's start with the timelines because that yeah. might help flesh out who the protagonist is. Right. So, from my count, we have four-ish timelines there, four, yeah. and i'm and the fourth one is just a collection of what i'm gonna say before yeah yeah i i one of the things i noted about one of the i was writing out the different timelines to try and clear it in my own head and for, i i called them like oh this is the future and this is the present and that's sort of the past like the actual accident but then there's this collection of it's i, I mean i have no word for it other than almost like a um uh, just a kaleidoscope of of memories it's like it's like a functionality of how people's memory works which is we remember these snapshots of things and as you get further along memories fade and things jumble but you you keep glimpses and it's almost like these glimpses of memory 
that are spread throughout the serve to give us a sense of character throughout i think not to parrot the canadian government's uh uh <laughs> words for for what canadian culture is but it is a bit like a mosaic in that that's like, a much better word in that you have all these different colored tiles beside each other and if you're standing too close it doesn't seem to make sense but if you take a step back and you see the whole thing for what it is you see the whole picture and you get the design and you understand what's happening and so the timelines break down as, to me, there's day of the accident. Yep. There's everything before that, which yep. is a bunch of... The mosaic. Could be, yeah, the mo- yeah. And then so you have the day of the accident. You have everything that happened the d- before the day of the accident. You have everything that's between the day of the accident and present day. Which to me kind of feels in my mind, sort of a part of that same timeline, like before the accident and between accident and present day, which I don't know what you use, but in my mind, the present is, is like Ian Holm or the Mitchell is going through and talking to everybody yeah, and Mitchell building Stevens, this case. Oh, see my present day is I had my present day is him just on the flight. See that to me was like future only because I didn't know what to do about past. If present was past so that like present is the events <laughs> of the story which right. is him doing the the work of building the case the future is him in the future looking oh, back okay. on what happened the past is the accident and then everything that doesn't fit into those like sort of linear and more niche like contained timelines belongs to this timeline of of mosaic okay well that may inform that may inform whose movie we think this is because it might because because I think the plane ride and maybe even some of the phone calls uh, with his daughter are mixed in to that. Well, which I guess is kind of what you're saying is the fu- is the future, but it, it just so that so you're saying that that future timeline starts with him arriving in town and leaves with him getting on the plane to go to his daughter. No, no. So the the present starts with him arriving in town and doing the case, talking to the people, interviewing everybody until the final until episode. the final point when when Nicole Lied. crashes the case yeah. and and ends it for him. And then the future timeline is is literally it just is him on a plane finally going to his daughter. And and I I guess the reason I break it up that way is because to me that flight is the conclusion of his character arc um and it's spread out throughout the movie but as uh, but if you if you took each of these pieces and put them in sequential order his arc becomes loves and cares and helps for his daughter gets tired of her uh, essentially shit can't can't muster enough energy to continue to fight for her goes to this town to try and reconcile himself and at the end of the day is more doing this to try and fix his own problems than to fix other people's problems and in doing this thing and having all of these other you know phone calls and etc and then eventually this call where his uh, where zoe says she tests positive he eventually reaches this art conclusion which is that regardless of how he feels he's still her father and he's still going to go try and take care of her and help her so that that chunk that future chunk of flying there is like the last 10 minutes of the movie but it's just been exploded across the rest of the film yeah oh no no and i guess i i understand that part i guess um i was just getting a little confused with myself there but it, it um 
and I do feel like that time the flight stuff is is the conclusion to his arc but I read it a little differently in that like I he was doing his job but he was doing it like um like uh what what's that uh what's that term for, for like those nurses that go crazy and start killing their patients because it gives them peace there's a term for that <laughs> yeah yeah they have like a like a psychopath term for like it's like a good samaritan or something to that effect but like who snaps well no because it's these nurses that are so tired of these patients who are constantly like they put them out of their misery. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, it's like Angel of Mercy, I think is what they call oh, it. Oh, okay. And it, right. and, I, and I only know that from watching like Law and Order and stuff through the years. Sure. <laughs> um, so, and so that might not be a real term. That might just be a TV term. I think one way or another, if it becomes a TV term, it becomes popular culture and yeah. it kind of becomes a term. So to me, he's that, but in the law form, which is that he's like, he's doing this thing that we have to find... We have to find a reason that this happened. There has to be there this can't be misfortune. This has to be this has to be an injustice. This has to be a corporation cutting corners. This has to be a lazy mechanic. This has to be a bus driver who went a little too fast for the conditions. There had to be a reason this happened. And I think and and because there's a point in which the money gets brought up when he's at the auto's house. And, uh, and he says, like, he says what he's, he's like, I get one third of the settlement or whatever. But what I found interesting was he seems almost like insulted a little bit when money gets brought up because I think he is like a crusader somewhat, but it's not for them. It's for, like you're saying for himself, because with his daughter, like, did they do anything wrong? What did he, like, he's, I, he blames himself for that. But also the human condi- like the human thing of not wanting to truly blame yourself. You put yourself in a little bit of denial. So then, like um, that line, something terrible is happening. They're taking our kids. Uh, it's too late. That's pretty close to what he he says when he's standing talking to himself by the bus after Billy leaves. But I think that that kind of sums sums up that fairly well. Is his idea of of his relationship with his daughter, which is that he did everything he could and somehow something has happened and she's gone awry and it's, it's not his fault one way or another that she has. Yeah. And then, and that like, but it's also be, it's almost that he keeps coming to her aid because he doesn't want to take the blame for her being in that condition. He doesn't want to be the guy who doesn't give her money one time and she ends up dead in an alley because of it. Yeah, be, and that comes down to the the story from that we open the uh, fr- uh the whole picture with, which is him and his wife and the baby lying on that mattress and she gets his daughter gets bit by a um a black widow. Um and um and he says that like that line that um, uh, so the the friend he's talking uh, the childhood friend of his daughter who he's talking to on the plane says to him when he, so you got to the hospital and you didn't have to do you didn't have to perform the tracheotomy on your on your infant daughter and he says no but I was a par- prepared to and I was prepared to go a lot further 
And I think that's that's what he's doing now. That's the plane getting on and going to find her wherever she is in her life. This is his final step of like, I'm going the mile and beyond now to try and help resolve this problem. Is that what you mean? No, I just mean that this is this is this this is why he'll ne- I think it's why he'll never stop. Oh, I see, I see, I see, yeah, yeah. In the in the truck that day, he made the decision that I'm willing to do anything to make sure this person lives. And so now that 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 since that moment, he's he's in that zone. I see that. I can see that. Um, so I guess I'm going to answer your second question now. Now that we've kind of broken down that idea, uh, because I think it it. There, there, there might be a difference. I think that there's an argument for a lot of different characters in whose movie it is. I think that you could argue it's Nicole's movie. I think that you could argue it's... Um, I mean, she's, she's the big other one. But in my mind, regardless of, of other plot lines, to me, it feels like it's, it's a mix of Nicole's movie and Mitchell's movie. But I think that it's more to Mitchell's movie only because we see him earlier, we get his backstory earlier... And his arc um, sort of drives a lot of the plot, I think. Um, and I, I, I think that all of those things you were saying were right. I agree, or at least I agree with all of them. Um, but I think that it's a mix. Like I think he goes in there because he believes, to a point at least, what he's doing, and that he's just doing his job, and and he does seem very vehemently. Uh, about fighting people who get lazy and don't do their jobs. Um, but I also felt like the only times that he really felt in earnest, like he was emotional when having those conversations that he wasn't just acting, which he literally calls himself a good actor, which is part of why I felt that. Um, the big one for me was when it, when he talks about saving kids and preventing things from happening again and that was where it felt like those two points that brought him here were the two points that drive him more than anything else. And the rest of it is is probably why he got into law and probably why he does what he does, but that he doesn't necessarily... It's not driving this particular case. It's become the, the, the script or the template for why he does what he does. Whereas this instance feels to me like he's entirely passionately driven because he's trying to come to terms with slash find a resolution for his own problems at the often expense of the people that he is now supposedly helping. Which I think is, is a, was a really smart character choice by both the Goyan and, and Ian Holm. Uh, because, uh, as you mentioned earlier, this is based on a true story, and part of the part of so Russell Banks, the author, read a New York Times article about this town, and it was a year after the event happened, so it was a retrospective of what happened to the town in the wake of this tragedy, and essentially it destroyed this small town. Uh, the, the blame thing being a big issue, all mm, these lawyers yeah. came in, everybody got different lawyers, everyone blamed each other. And they, and therefore there could like the, like the, all there was the, no community or union anymore. Yeah, and and that thing you mentioned earlier about like how a Goyan likes exploring, like how we all have that veneer and what's but then what's behind that what's behind that facade and uh, and then what happens when that facade starts to crumble, which I think is like a theme in all of his movies, 
And um, there's a big duality to what people do and what people say and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. And, and I, so, but I, I think, I think it being like a righteous quote unquote crusader for this, um, I think me like matters more because like that the moment the accident happens, the town is dead. They just don't know it yet. Do you know what I mean? It's just, they're slowly going to die. Okay, okay. So I have a question for you in follow-up to that then, because I think that our views on that might be determined by how we view certain characters. Uh, so in my mind... Could I just interject yeah. to ask one question before you go on? Those 14 kids ranging in ages, how much of the kid population of this town do you think that is? Is that I, I think all of them? I don't think is it's all of them. Is that half of them? I don't think it's all of them, but coming from a small town and knowing how buses work in that sort of area, it would be a significant component. Like there, It would be beyond like some kids who get rides to school instead of taking the bus or who walk or like more of the in-town. Like there's going to be multiple, there might be more than one bus, but, but like that one route based on how it was going, like it probably swung through all of the small towns all or not, like small areas, the sort of slightly out of town places like it would have been a significant portion of the well, town's kids she mentions that it's the the mountainside kids that she picks up she does like the mountainside route yeah and, and then and there's I maybe think, a valley ish area that does it is another bus and then i think they rely heavily on that to, to pause you for a second there just to that point is that i think they rely really heavily on hiding the numbers because the idea of and that metaphor the whole time of like the the Pied Piper story and this being its own version of that. I think that the only, the, the best way to make those connections is that the only child left in the town is Nicole because she's the, the quote unquote, like the lame, like the, the, the more crippled kid who can't keep up. And so therefore she survives when nobody else does. Um, and that analogy, that comparison doesn't, work fully if you know that there's more people left well but and again you grew up in a small community more than i did i didn't grow up in a great big place but it what we yeah it wasn't as small as where you grew up and um and it, it but it's my understanding that it'll take multiple communities to a school that's placed some central location the high school in the town i grew up in which the town i was in was like ten thousand people when we moved there and we serviced at least six like hamlets villas townships and like farming communities in the area that were all bust in from different directions so even if this didn't like it didn't wipe out like all of the school it might have taken out this one small town's generation of kids yeah or at least the people who would have been a cohesive community would be the ones who were all sort of impacted. Right. And I guess that's why I made my bold statement saying that when they died, the town died because it's, it's, it's kids from what looked like grade one. So five and six through grade 12 or whatever. Yeah. She's well, supposed she's to playing be. 15. That's so, the end of middle school. Yeah. So, like, so, so that's like, yeah. So that's grade. Yeah. Grade one through grade nine, nine, nine 10. Something like that. Yeah. So, um, and if it took out that whole generation, small towns don't generally get more people to come in. It's the people that are they, there that have kids and those kids stay that rejuvenate the town. The town rejuvenates itself. 
And if so, all those people are now gone, there's no new generation to take over yeah, the town. And these, yeah, yeah. And, these, and the families that had these children are so despondent and so destroyed. Most of them I can't see, like, having new more kids soon. And so that's why I think that this town is, is like on the road to a ghost town. Like, all right, all right. Yeah. So I, 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 maybe my comment is slightly sidebar, but not entirely because, um, I, I think I agree to that point where, um, it's going to be hard to revitalize and, uh, and for the town to carry on forever uh, or at least not forever, but onto the next generation when there's barely a next generation to be there until if more people move there. Um, but also, I, I, in my mind, when I watched it, I didn't think that it was the accident that was what... Uh, I didn't think it was dead the moment the accident happened. In my head, I thought, okay, so an accident has happened, and now there's this conflict where there are a group of people who believe that the best route is to, is to find some sort of uh, solace or comfort in reparations and in finding out some sort of hidden truth about what happened and that by using this lawsuit and this lawyer they can come to some kind of um, acceptance and and reunification and then there are others namely billy whose view is that they have always been a united community and that rather than bringing in outsiders they should deal with it themselves and just handle it that way now in my head there's also arguments that like oh well a lot of these people don't want to deal with this because you know maybe the incest will come out if the daughter suddenly has to ask answer awkward questions or something um but i i I felt like uh it was more the lawsuit and the division over said lawsuit that was the the main uh uh and i guess nail in the coffin if you will um but I think what drives that thought in my mind is that I don't view Mitchell as a magnanimous or particularly uh, altruistic person. I view him as kind of a shitty person who ha- is using other people's pain to for his own selfish gains, even if he doesn't realize he is, um, and that that's more the driving factor of his character than what you say, which you seem to think his driving factor, correct me if I'm wrong, but you seem to, from what it sounds like, you seem to feel his driving factor is more the passion for saving and doing this like solid, important job. Um. Uh, well, yeah, I, I do think he has a, like, I think he, th- he has like a moral code and right is right and wrong is wrong. Even if it's a little bit hardline and not and a little bit conservative, perhaps not like conservative liberally or politically, but just like in general, sort of older, more classic. Yeah, and I guess I, I what I was meaning is from the point of view of the character, he thinks what he's doing is a noble crusade. Yeah. Okay. But yeah. I, but I do that. think his cru- <laughs> crusade used there on purpose because I think there's a lot of collateral damage. Okay, I, okay. I do think he's blowing up people and, and families and emotions and communities. Um, but to to go to the thing to the idea that um, that it's the uh, it's the lawyers that broke the town. I think that just that just re- that just further shows what's underneath what was already underneath. Like I think it's just 
I think he comes in and because he's asking all these questions about the interconnectivity of these, this community, he's holding a mirror up to the community a little bit. And all of a sudden the, because the bus crash broke the veneer of this town, they're now seeing the ugly underbelly of what this is. And I think that's where the division comes in. But I think that, that the moment the children like die, the connection between all these people, because that like, that's the thing I think Agoyan kind of brilliantly sets up in the first half of the movie when he keeps doing the flashbacks to Dolores picking up the children she has all these interactions with the parents who walk the kids to the edge of the lane and then the kid and she has inside jokes with different people and that kind of thing. And, and, um, and it's kind of this bus route that every morning, whether they realize it or not, is connecting this whole community, this whole mountainside. This little bus goes around from each place and like a, uh, a needle and thread threads this whole community together. And when you take that like as we see later with the claw picking up that uh, the bus and bringing it off to, to get to be crushed or whatever. Um, when you remove that bus completely from the community, I think uh, that's when the, the loose threads start. And then, and then you're right. I guess it's just, then it's just a matter of opinion. What I, I would say, what's cutting the needle off the thread and therefore making the thread loose is what starts this whole Division, yeah. Okay. So, rather than rather than what what is the outside pressure that forces the the seams apart in this? Yeah. Community. Okay. I I think I agree. I think that um, the the difference I I cite is only that until the lawsuit happens, I felt like there could have been a chance for recovery. There was a world in which this small town that had had this catastrophic event occur. This tragedy that has torn everybody apart there's a way and a world in which they found their way back and re-knitted this sort of community tapestry if you will um and that the final nail being that the lawyers come in and push them even further apart but but i would agree that i still think the the point of of no return almost is or at least the 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 factor of if you want to go hero's journey there's the the event that changes the world so that nobody can go back to how things were uh it is that bus and accident and it is the loss of him that does drive people apart it's just that i thought maybe there was a way back before and then uh the division caused by this lawsuit people being on both sides might have made it worse slash finalized it but and there's that moment, um, you know, where Bruce Greenwood goes over to confront uh, Nicole and Sam, her dad, and the mom about the case. Right. Uh, well, she, Nicole is eavesdropping on the parents' conversation. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he said, like, he has that whole thing. We need the money, you know, covering her hospital bills and all that thing. By the way, I thought that was a weird choice, but maybe that's a, maybe I'm just too familiar with the modern healthcare system, but I just didn't think that, um, cause this isn't set in 1997. I don't think. It's I think 95 is when it's set. Okay. The, the, the lawsuit part happens. He shows up in town in November of 95 Five, right. and 97 is when he's on the plane because of that wonderful calendar setup they do yeah. in the beginning where they cut from no, the calendar to the plane news and so I think then, if that's the case, they've made a few interesting um, changes. Uh, for some reason, they're still using imperial and not metric when they say miles per hour. Yeah, I mean, part part of me thinks that 
it, it's one of two things. It's either layover from the book, which was about a, a U.S. incident, yeah. and and is probably that, written by a U.S. author, although I didn't look that part up. Yeah, he's U.S. and um, it, he actually he changed the location from Texas to Michigan. Yeah, so this, yeah. Ha- this takes okay. place in a snowy town in Michigan. There you go. Um, but I also think that part of that too is there's this unfortunate trend in Canadian cinema, um, and there are very few people that break out of it which is that regardless of whether it's set in Canada, regardless of any sort of setting at all, um, the, the rule, and I've, I've been told by people who have marketed uh, movies through agents and distribution companies that they, are, it, they request that you use imperial units and you use American money and you use all of that because it's more accessible to an American audience if they see the money they expect the units that they understand and are and at this point in time whatever we like to think about it the money in film is in the american market and if you want to get that market and you want to be as internationally successful as possible you need to cater to the largest viewing demographic which means that most canadian films will use either use american money or just not show cash and they'll at the very least talk in miles and and feet and whatever rather than kilometers if they're going to specifically mention it yeah i i mean i absolutely agree with all that and i've heard very much similar things um i guess my arguments against maybe it not being that is one this was made as a canadian independent film with telefilm money our parents paid for this (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um i wasn't paying taxes by 97 uh, so it wasn't me but um um but the other thing is like growing up my mom um so i'm not sure how De- or old dolores is supposed to be in the start like in this film in the like when she has the bus crash yeah i, I, I don't like i don't know she's married to a guy who's wearing a legion coat so he was like a canadian military guy i, I estimated in her 50s is what so, i kind of vibe so with. that puts her a few years older than my mom would have been in 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 uh well my mom in the 90s let's say a lot many years older than my mom because she's listening uh in 97 uh but um but what but what i mean to say is growing up my mom used imperial and metric almost interchangeably because for the first like 10 or something years of her grade school she it was imperial and then she was like the generation that switched and i mean even even after that when i was in school we talked in 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 metric exclusively in school but yet you go to the doctor and the doctor is measuring you in pounds and feet and your your heights and every like it's such a mixed system and it's yeah of... yeah so but i i just thought i actually was pointing it out because i i kind of thought it was an interesting detail perhaps to a canadian audience dating that person saying like she's of a oh. vintage that would call it miles per hour even though Sarah Polly then calls it uses yeah, miles so per hour does, later, and so does the the lawyer, which is, I mean, he's, he's, he's all, parroting he, her, but also like you would think that they would convert it because the government system would have been in metric, unless, but, and then also maybe the bus company or whoever they're suing is a U.S. company or whatever. But that, that's also <laughs> where I was kind of like, I, I I feel as though the change was made more for the marketing part than it was for story component because I I just I get the sense that if it had been made. For a story component, there would have been more changes to make it all connect properly versus like just 
changing out some words, which feels a little more last minute and more like, oh, we got to market more for this whatever reason. Um, and I guess one final question I had to you, because j- you just kind of reminded me of it, was that this um, one of the other major changes from the book to uh, to the film is the addition of the Pied Piper uh, allegory. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Um so uh, the Pied Piper of Hamelin, um, the Browning uh, story. Um, uh, so I guess you identified that the lame child left behind is Sarah Polly's uh, Nicole. So who's the Pied Piper? That's funny. I wrote that question down for you as well. Right. Um, because first of all, I think that that is the most clear connection because she is literally made lame by the original definition of that word yeah yeah um through this accident and and she is the only survivor because of that reason or not because of it but that is like the condition that she is and so like all of those things directly suggest that she is well that character they literally have her they put the dialogue of her reading that part over her pushing herself in the wheelchair towards the final deposition so clearly it's it's the filmmaker's intention to tie those two images together. Yeah, yeah, but also and and there's a portion of the narrative that is narrated by that child near the end or or at the very least it's through his eyes when they talk about like oh all all my friends are gone and it's so boring here now. Um totally accurately quoted to how the poem says it of course. That's to <laughs> a to a T the words. Um but I also think that there is an argument that she is also the piper. Uh, and I think that the, the, that argument is more interesting to me than the only other person that I can see being the piper clearly, which is far too obvious, which is that Dolores is being the one who leads them off and like drives them in. Like there's that argument that she is, but other than that key point, which is she's the one leading them to their death essentially there's nothing else that connects those two whereas i almost feel like like nicole becomes both she's a merged version where she is she is the cause of the lack lacking or the cause of the the tragedy but also the survivor that is not that she causes it obviously but like for the case of being the piper and not no and and absolutely and so like what does the piper uh how does the piper entice the children with song and dance and, and she's, she's a, a singer, singer. and yep. then uh also wh- the movie then... ends on her with that flute that uh what's it the persian nay flute i think yeah, is what yeah. it's called it ends on her with that music as it's coming up so that's like it is the piper at the end who gets the last word but it's also i thought another interesting thing about it was though the, the a connection was that um uh oh sorry go ahead oh well i just like the the other point that i thought too that was like evidence for her being the piper is that she is also the one who is taking revenge the piper is doing this because he's punishing the town for not paying him and she's punishing her dad for the horrible things he's done that was the what i was going to say oh, okay. uh, as well was the point i was getting to was that um when she's done narratively telling the story to the kids the night she tells the story or maybe she's not done but she's just done a page the young boy i forget his name of the two twins uh looks up and says why did he do it and then she kind of pauses, thinks about it, and says, he was angry. And um, I think I think you, the, you could make an argument that um, 
like yeah the accident turns her into the lame child but i think she's the kind she was kind if she's the piper she's also the piper all along and it um and the bus crash i think helps her character realize what so what's so messed up in her life and now that she's not this like because she was lost in that illusion that her dad had created like abusively forced on her of this he created uh, this world you're gonna be a rock star you're gonna be the center stage you are my world and then use that as the entrance to taking advantage of this poor young girl and so i think i think a bit of her punishment um i think her lie that hurts more than just her dad i think is on purpose it, it to hurt more than just her dad because everybody in her eyes has failed her well, and, and there's that suggestion, too, that and and there's that interview where Adam McGoin talks a bit about his filmmaking process. And he talks in there about how, uh, about this story of um, uh, this girl he knew when he was a kid, he was uh, sort of infatuated with who was being, he found it was being abused by her father and found out that, like, it was a sort of thing that everybody in town kind of had this sense that it was happening, but nobody was saying or doing anything because they didn't know how to broach it or whatever, whatever the reason was, they weren't doing anything. And that was the, there was a, a sense that I got while it was never overtly suggested that anybody knew it's sort of this I- idea. It seemed that she felt as though somebody should have helped her and nobody helped her. And, and that maybe there are people who knew, or at the very least should have been, should have known if they'd open their eyes kind of thing. And that like, not only is she getting back at her father, but she's, she's getting her comeuppance, if you will, for all these other people who never helped her either. I, I think, I think that I, that's how in this, in my viewing for this is how I read it. When I first watched it, I didn't understand that turn. Right. Um, yeah. And I do now. And then, so that interview that you just cited there is like, I think he did it in 2020. And it's like a more modern retrospective look at his films. And um, we both saw it through the Criterion channel, but you might be able to access it elsewhere. But yeah, I thought it very interesting that he tells that story. He also tells it on a CBC interview I saw um, that was about the sweet hereafter done in like, I think it was a 20 year retrospective in uh, uh, 2017. Um, But yeah, so... Yeah, he like you said, very close friend of his was being abused and but there's this there's this theme in like in like um starting maybe back in the 70s but like is when when I can kind of remember first seeing movies with this idea, but it's like David Lynch and Agoyan and a bunch of a bunch of directors have this thing about small towns and that like that assumed politeness or that assumed like um you you equally know everyone's business but no one talks about anybody's business it's this act of denial that i think he brings up in that interview um uh which is like leads to it being an environment where a lot of seedy things can happen well i mean right off the bat the first time we're introduced to well not exactly but like the first proper scene with our main quote-unquote main character which uh 
to go back way back for a second, he is called the main character by somebody in an interview where, or on Wikipedia. He, it's like, oh, the main character, Mitchell Stevens, was added as a change to the book or whatever. But anyways, uh, the first time we have that uh, full scene with him, he's in the hotel talking to the hotel owners who are um, essentially ratting out all of the dirty gossip and secrets they know about everybody in the town. And it, well, just the husband is, which I think is a note because the wife, because the wife is doing what I'm saying a little bit. She's doing that. She's doing the glossy version of the small of, of telling a stranger about your town where for whatever reason, the husband has dropped all of that. And he's just, saying what he thinks and it pro like not and you can't like he right away you get the understanding that he's an unreliable narrator for for who these town folk well, are yeah because he immediately is like oh well you you don't know that they smoke weeds you can't say that but he's also like making assumptions about people and then when when mitchell walks away to take his call and is eavesdropping at the same time on them uh, the, the, the first thing you hear him say is, why are you talking about things you don't know? And I, the second time I watched it through, I tuned Mitchell out and just listened to their argument. And the whole conversation is just him accusing her of accusing people of things that she doesn't know about when that was essentially literally what he was doing because he can't truly know the whole story of these people, but he's talking like he's an authority. So he, he's set up right there as being unreliable, as being hypocritical and, I mean, sort of empathetic to her, who then it shows up later. She has her own secret, which is that she's having an affair. Yeah. And so, of course, she's not going to talk about other people's shit because she doesn't want people to talk about her shit. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it makes us more sympathetic to her than to him. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I am. And uh, that, of course, he's played by the uh, the char- great character hour uh, character actor, uh, Maury Choikin, Chalkin who's who passed away but he was in so many movies and was just one of those faces i always saw and um and but he also played in like all of agoyan's early movies like he was part of this rotating cast of canadian characters that agoyan was using for all of his early stuff but yeah no so i but i think that see the seedy underbelly of small towns is like david lynch really explores this in like blue velvet and stuff and it's like like at the I I don't know if it's the opening shot or but one of the early shots of Blue Velvet is uh, a green beautiful green grass and a camera going along uh, like a white picket fence and I, then we land on uh, a, a like a cut off finger in the middle of the lawn and you're oh. like so it's it's like this weird juxtaposition of the pic, white picket fence the idyllic suburbia suburbia thing and then the and I think I think there's a lot like I think that small town, that suburbia hidden basements kind of thing is like something that has captured the mind of pro- and probably me citing the 70s isn't a terrible idea because that's roughly when urbanites started moving out to the using their wealth to move out to the suburbs and all of that. And there's lots of reasons that uh, that happened with white people moving to the suburbs um but that's for a different podcast not this one uh well being as we're on the on the vein of of you asking the questions you had i did have another one that i wanted to uh, throw up so why don't we wrap up this segment by me asking one back to you uh which is that there was uh we talked about the mosaic and the idea of of um memory flashes and timelines and all that kind of thing and i had a question for you about the whole opening sequence because i was trying to figure out besides the obvious part of like 
we're having uh we're introducing some characters and stuff i i didn't i wasn't sure what what and where the point of the 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 circuit or not circus i guess festival i don't know what you rodeo whatever it is right at the beginning you see nicole singing on stage you see your dad they have this like happy sort of um i don't know family moment before you know that everything's all fucked up between them um and then they walk off and do their own thing and in it you see like a shot of a school bus with dolores and it's like it's sort of in some sense, I guess, this idyllic picture of what the town is um, and introducing characters, but it's framed with uh, Mitchell on his journey to the town slash also this conversation with his daughter and some other things like that. And it just, it seemed to me to be out of place and sort of weird to be put there. And I'm wondering if you felt that or if you thought there was a more... So um, if it made you uncomfortable and weird, I think that was the point of that edit. And the reason is because I do think this is a, like it's a dual protagonist or it's a, like or could be seen as a dual protagonist between Nicole and Mitchell. And what you're doing is you're juxtaposing those two relationships, the father daughter relationships between Sam and Mitchell and Zoe, I think, is Zoe's Mitchell's his daughter, daughter yeah. and, and played Nicole. by the daughter of the person who wrote the novel. That's correct. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like one of her only acting. Yeah, I think and, she's got like one or two others that are no. And I mean, nothing, but I don't want to, you know, like, no, yeah, yeah, she was great and everything. I just I do think that like they, there was a there were. I think if you brought a heavy hitter into play that it might brought more gravitas to that relationship. Um, probably. Um, but she wasn't bad, but she was like for a non-actor. Yeah. She, it made sense when I found out she was a non-actor. Let me say that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, um, but yeah, cause, and then I think the other thing, and this goes to that idyllic town, which is like, I've always had this thought that like, um, context is 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 the fine line between charming and creepy kind of thing yeah yeah for sure um and and that context of the word daddy being used by in those first two things so you you it starts first with a drug addled girl and you can tell it's a strained relationship talking to talking to what you now what you learn quickly is her father and that kind she of thing also says daddy. and she says daddy daddy and she says it in this like begging tone and and it's a relationship where they're not le- they're not it's not an even power dynamic and she's using that to manipulate her father whereas the next one it's an uneven power dynamic but she's using it like to please her father almost it's this really weird like like he's keeping her I know she's 15, but even a 15-year-old girl saying, Daddy, Daddy, like in public. It, it, is... seems, it seems a little bit old and a li- or young and a little bit childish for someone who is that old. Right, I mean. which to me, I mean, I had seen it before, but it, this time, more than last time, it really jumped out at me as something like, like all of a sudden I started feeling some like nefarious tones to it. And like, I maybe I was just too, like when I was younger, because this is, I've seen this, I watched it twice for this. And I think I've seen it about two or three other times in my life. And I, I don't think I ever really, I didn't pick up on the subtext of the father-daughter relationship until the walk to the barn. Yeah, yeah, The first yeah. couple times yep. I saw it. Same. When there's that pause and he has the guitar and he looks over his shoulder. That's, that's when you're like, oh shit. And but I was like, like mo- oh my God, something's yeah. not right here. 
that he's not looking at his daughter like that's his daughter. He's looking at it like and it's it's like fr- two it's kids framed. coming back from a date almost where like there's that charming little moment they'll have on a date where like someone's on the doorstep and the other person's just taking a moment to collect themselves. And it's like framed like that, but then it, because of you understand the relationship between these two characters, it's this like it just turns your it instantly turned my stomach, and you didn't uh, also, even need the next scene. But the also fact it's that it's framed with that um, um, strange interaction where Billy and uh, walks her out kind of thing and gives her the clothes that his wife used to wear says something about cause she grew up and it's just like this awkward moment where you can tell he's in the zone of thinking about her, maybe like his wife and like lusting after this 15 year old a bit, but not acting on it. And, and I think that is, I, 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 I would really have to study, like, I'm not, I'm not well versed on, uh, the the behaviors of trauma victims like early right, childhood yeah. trauma victims like this girl um so like i don't know but to me it it looks like she's flirting with um uh bruce greenwood's character uh because like she's like are you sure the clothes are okay and she like kind of walks up and kind of tiptoes up to be like a little bit more eyeline with him and like I felt she maybe I'm misremembering, but I felt she closed the distance to him with the clothes. And then they put and then the DP puts them in that two shot where it's like like a standard rom com two shot where they're face to face with like a bundle of something between the two of them. Uncomfortably close. Yeah, I don't um I didn't get that sense. I didn't know I, not, not, I the, don't, not I, to say she's flirting, but no, like yeah. that she's she's she was acting comfortable with him. Yeah, I thought. Which, I think maybe I think it's possible that the movie is making her comfortable on purpose because she's babysit for him all the time. She's she feels safe there, and it's it's one of those scenarios of like I don't know maybe maybe it's it's a way for her to be away from her dad in a place that she feels like is not a threatening environment. Um, but I don't know that I and I think maybe the movie wants us to feel that without. But I I don't think that I, and I don't a, I'm not I'm not saying I'm not putting a blame on her by saying no, that no, at all. No, yeah. and, and I don't mean that. I don't mean, I guess I did say flirting, but I don't mean in like, I don't even necessarily mean in a sexual context, but I do mean in a sexual context because that's how her relationship with older men are defined in her brain. So even if she doesn't mean to, maybe that's just how she reacts with these father figures in her yeah, life. Yeah. And, and I, oh, and I think he is very much a father figure because I don't think she, is planning on to do what she does in the final deposition until she overhears Bruce Greenwood's. I got that vibe too. She was entirely on board until he comes up and starts, starts asking for it to get stopped. And, and, and that's a really interesting. And that scene goes to that thing, what you were saying about community versus like trusting the outsider or trusting ourselves, which, which is also just for the small town point, a big thing about small towns um, not and not all of them, obviously, but there's a, an interesting dynamic there compared to cities, where in cities your your family and your close friends are your community, and you will travel further to see people um, who are in entirely different regions of this large space that is a city uh, to be around community. But in small towns, a lot of times your community becomes the people who are around you. And that there's a lot more personal and um, close connections. Like like the street I grew up on, I knew by name 
probably a third of the people that lived on my street. I babysat for one of them. One of them was my teacher. A couple of them we just became friends with. And you just yell at people over fences and things. Like you get this sort of like internal community within your street beyond uh, outside of just your friend circle, maybe they where they are, uh, which I think goes to your point that, you know, her sense of, of community and where she is and where she belongs is entirely uh, communal in some ways, I guess, perhaps, although maybe not exactly fully communal, but you know, you know what I mean? I do. I do. And, and I, and I do think she sees the Bruce Greenwood as a, as a safer father figure and that kind of thing. And I think that's part of what inspires that. And I, yeah, and I, I agree with all that. I, I would just sit, note that like, I think that is city and, and of big cities, borough dependent, uh yeah of course like, it's not, not based nothing on, is generally based on, applicable always yeah what film and television have taught me is there's <laughs> like you'll have inner city things and people yelling out you know the third floor window to somebody on the second floor or to on the street on the stoop and whatever in like new york and like hey blah blah hey shut up mrs whatever and blah, blah. And, and even in vancouver like last year when when covid was a thing there were some examples of people in apartment buildings downtown having like conversations off balconies and doing like you know hooray for the nurses like multi-building coordinated things so like it does exist but there's more vibe of uh niche communities that are yeah i would say i would say certainly that is the more prototype like that's the proto like small towns uh you can leave your doors open we know we we know each other so that it's the safety the fact that we all know each other yeah yeah um whereas in the big city you know there's even if you know all your neighbors you don't know you don't know the next you don't know the next building over you don't know the next building over from that um so yeah uh i yeah i agree um but i i also because we've touched on it a little bit um we should talk a bit about the cine yeah, so that was what I was going to say is when you finished that thought as well, was that maybe we get into that for a few minutes here before we finish off this story character stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So the D, uh, the cinematographer this uh, this movie's uh, Paul Sorosi. Um, he's like um, he's like a legitimate like um, you know titan of Canadian cinematography. He's worked with like massive Canadian directors like Denny Arcan or Norman Jewison. Um, he's done a he's done a bunch of movies. In fact, of kind of a funny off uh, shoot that I found out. So uh, um, Russell Banks, the author of this, um, in 1997, two separate movies were were made about his books: The Sweet Hereafter and Affliction. Right. Yeah. And Paul. Uh, Paul, the DP from this, Paul Sorosi, uh, he he DP'd both of those movies. So like, oh, wow. I don't know if 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 Banks was like in pre-production was like, I love the look of Sweet Hereafter, let's use him. But it's 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 kind of that would strange. be uncommon. Yeah, and because be Affliction is a Paul Schrader uh, directed movie, right? Okay, uh, you know Schrader. I know the name. I haven't. I don't so know he much like wrote Taxi his. Driver. And stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Anyway, uh, but yeah, no. So this this movie. Uh, so things I liked in this movie was the like it, uh, the very natural aesthetic. Um, most of it feels practically lit, um, and then the like framing. Um, you know, directors get a lot of credit for framing, and I think they do a lot of it. To be fair, and some more than others, they at least drive the intention of framing for sure. Um, but 
the framing in this, if we can give any of that credit to Paul, is is pretty beautiful. Like, there's a lot of frames and frames. There's a lot of like, if there's an unusual frame used, it's really telling you something. Even even like not exactly the first shot we see, but when um when Mitchell's in the car wash and it's just that long slow like he's going through and you've got this sort of creepy sort of beautiful unsettling music and then he's just in a car wash and you see his eyes in the mirror and you see his shoulder and just like the way it's all laid out it's sort of like it feels sort of a horror vibey weirdly enough but uh, well and even going before that like so the opening frame as we already discussed is that is the fan is the furthest back yeah, we yeah. see which is the is Mitchell Stevens his then wife and his newborn uh, daughter Zoe in bed together, and it's this beautiful like. If you just if it you, looks like a Rembrandt painting, almost yeah, like it looks like it belongs on the wall of a of an art house. Yeah, somewhere. and if it was a if, like picture, not painting, it still belongs on the like because yeah, of course, y- yeah, like you and I having a glass of wine, looking at that, could discuss a thousand narratives that could be just based off of seeing those three and how comfortable they all look together. They're like mostly nude. They're mostly like they're on a mattress on the floor rather than on a bed. Like it's got so many interesting components. And just, yeah, the soft light pouring in like that's beautiful. And so I think that's a real, like, um, so if you open a movie like that, the movie instantly to me become like, Oh, this is a movie about family. Yeah, yeah. And that was something, again, from that video where, or that interview that we both reference now, where he talks about how, and it's not just this movie, he does it in many of his films, where he opens the film with a shot that, without context, makes you think, and it puts you in a frame of mind where you're trying to come to terms with what the ideas are going to be, and it hopefully sets the mood so that by the time you get that reveal of where and when and how that shot fits into the narrative you've already been prepared for what the movie is beforehand. Exactly. And and I think that continues right into the next shot because it, uh, it goes from that shot and then it starts a title sequence and the title sequence gets cut over a dolly shot of a floor passing by um, essentially like it's an evenly lit floor except you then pass by hotter spots that is like uh, the, the windows. Which I did. I I never fully grasped what that was supposed to so, be. So, but so what I what my like reading into after hearing him say like he uses some confusing images at the start, but that try to try to like thematically join to what the movie's going to be about is like in each of those window silhouettes as you come to them, there is a blowing. Um, sheer not not a curtain but like a sheer right where you can see through it and it clearly has a little pattern and you can see that pattern fluttering and little breaks where you're getting pure window and that kind of thing and i just that feels like that thin veneer that we're gonna be looking through soon and we're gonna be getting we're gonna be seen past and we're gonna be there is something blowing that sheer that is masking what's behind it there's something blowing and fluttering that and getting it out the way break out yeah and reveal the truth yeah almost like it's bubbling under the surface already and it just needs a a a a match to light the spark or whatever yeah yeah i uh I, i like that i i honestly like um it took me a couple watches to get some good ideas of what i wanted to say about cine for this but uh from the beginning i i got a very um i was i was kind of in love with what what was going on lighting and camera wise overall um but like you said, naturalistic, I really felt 
the the cold in the lighting um you feel it and anybody who who has spent much time in really snowy places will know that um when there's whether there's cloud cover or not if you're in a snowy location and the air feels cold it like the lighting looks cold the snow the lights bouncing off the snow it's giving it that kind of washed out reflective semi-hard light but also diffusing it through the clouds and they they did a really really good job of of creating that if if they created it versus just using natural light and when and where they did which i don't know but uh that was done really really well but um but i found that an interesting comparison to that was that a lot of the warms were not as warm as you'd be used to like 3200 is what you expect for tungsten indoor lighting um and the only thing off the top of my head i think was really that that temperature was the when you're outside and it's dark and there's window lights and it's balanced to the exterior daylight you're seeing the windows quite warm but whenever we're inside for the most part it felt closer to 3800 kelvin or even potentially closer to 4 in a lot of places and that that cold winter outside was constantly fighting and subduing the warmth that you would normally expect to represent and f- make you feel like you're at home in people's houses. Yeah. So. I, and I think, but I think they played with where they put warm light in this movie. I think, uh, I think they, I mean, it's setting, uh, if you're inside at night, obviously you're going to have warmer light, but like it is also cause the whole, when you're when you the first people Mitchell goes to see at the hotel, it's at night in that hotel. But it it they're like I think it's a TV light. There's like a mix of color temperatures. It just kind of it doesn't feel warm and cozy. It, and maybe it's also the dialogue. But it has this like um, it doesn't feel like warm interior. Right. But what does feel warm is when we see Nicole babysitting, and True. and when we see the first time. We see the lovers get together in the hotel. And the third scene that I felt was warm was unfortunately the scene in the barn with Sam and Nicole. To a point. I, I feel like it was closer in my head in remembering well, it. It was maybe closer just, to like the hotel warm. Than but it's, it was. We, we see all those candles and like set against a, ba- uh, like yeah. a base of hay. By the way, I didn't grow up on a farm, but that just seems like a terrible idea to have dry hay candles bales on hay, candles yeah, yeah, everywhere. Yeah. I mean, they're on dishes, but I mean, let's use some fire safety, guys. <laughs> come on, come on. <laughs> I mean, definitely not the worst thing happening in that barn well, at that well, moment. Well, no, no, no. We should not distract from that. But, but however, if yeah. you're trying to to not think about the other part of it, fire safety is a very valid point. Absolutely. Um, um, no, but I and I just thought I thought that was uh, like, and the reason I thought that one was also warm was kind of like a misdirect, like warmth doesn't it's it's implying that maybe it's it's less uh uh disliked than it is or than it should be oh uh that's more that's potentially more interesting that i was thinking was but i was thinking like that if that warmth is like is love that can be twi- like that can be twisted that can yeah, be yeah like it, that can be that doesn't yeah like i it's, think that that applies in the same way i think that both of those are kind of the same thing which is that like there's this twisting of of the situation where where whether like whatever nicole feels about it like it it 
makes you feel like the the relationship and the connection is more um uh, I, 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 I don't know. I'm being careful about how I'm choosing my words here, but it feels more consensual and more enjoyed by both parties yeah. than because of the way that it's lit and, and, but I, and, and graded I, rather than the fact that it's an abusive and yeah, horrible and again, connection. And, and again, with the same citation as earlier that I'm not well, like super well versed in this, but like from what I've remember hearing and like, and not talk shows and all that's not the authority on this, but like, that it that that that's part of the mental like abuse of this whole thing is that they they are like on the surface level do are potentially like in some level of enjoyment of the of in some cases where but it's that it's that disconnect with deep down they know everything that like everything that's happening to them is wrong like it's that it's that dichotomy between what they're like being brainwashed to think it's either and what a, their what their like gut is telling them that it's like uh, that's where the, but that's where like a lot of the anxiety and anguish and 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 torture comes from yeah yeah that's either some sort of self-destructive um i deserve slash this is all i'm worth or something to that effect or else literally being essentially brainwashed into into yeah. believing that it's and, yeah and in either of those scenarios not their fault it's no, no it's yeah. it's the it's it's sam this terrible human being uh manipulating and uh, like evilly so but yeah. but the, the lighting is doing a really good job there of making that yeah. feel um and there, there was another thing i noticed too which is the movie really liked to make visual connections between things that maybe wouldn't otherwise be connected but thematically are kind of connected or else um, not even necessarily thematically, but like my, my first example, and I didn't really think about this until like my third or fourth watch in my life kind of thing, like the second for this show, uh, was that when we see, uh, Ian home, or I guess Mitchell and in the car on the phone with Zoe, um, there's this m- moment where I realized that like their, their lighting is, is a big connecting factor between the two. So what, what, what I, what, what I mean by that is that the, the phone booth that she stands in talking on the phone is, and I don't have a, I didn't like meter or whatever to figure out the exactness, but they, the lighting between that and the greenish bluish light that highlights uh, Mitchell and his car are seem to me to be the same color. And that, that connection between them was like connecting those two distinct threads in a really, interesting way where where that green light is highlighting the person who's talking and everything else around them is super dark and in shadow like all the people behind her they're faceless they're just all darkened and you yeah because it doesn't matter the focus is they're both on the phone talking to each other and this sort of bluish green moonlighty but not moonlight because it's artificial in both cases but this bluish green cold light yeah, I think was I th- very, very, very similar in color. It's so like the it's like the gross interior fluorescence of the phone booth, and then the gross interior car lights. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's kind of doing it. And yeah, and it it just seemed so well well put in that I it felt intentional that it was trying to connect them in in some cold and weird way to bring those two worlds together and and totally not really thematic or anything, but I I just thought that was super interesting to bridge that gap uh, between the cuts and make it easier on the viewer in the same way that when they cut um, there's after we find, we get the story about 
um, the Black Widow and how uh, he drove her to the hospital and all that. There's this shot of uh, his new wife and, and Zoe being like, the wife is throwing the kid up and like, and spinning in a, in a wheat field essentially. And it seemed one of those sort of like, this probably didn't just happen. This is, seems like one of those memory moments of he's sort of remembering and sort of creating this idyllic image of this scene in his head in a way. And that kind of pans up into the sky. And that same sky is where um, Billy walks in to identify his dead kids uh, after the bus crash. And it's just like up to the sky. He walks in, looks down, just nods and walks away. We never see the bodies or anything. But there's this strange connection there that's made through that match cut, essentially, uh, that I thought was really well done as well. Yeah, and it's certainly tying the two state of minds of the fathers um, together. Uh, I read Roger Ebert's review of this. Oh, interesting. And he made a point in that that I didn't think I didn't read it like that, but I'm wondering maybe. So he says the look Ian Holm gives to his daughter on his lap when they arrive in his story, when they arrive at the destination, uh, he claims that that look has this little like um, or I guess what sorry, when it cuts back to him on the plane, having just finished that part of the story. What Roger Ebert is reading in his face there is, um, was it worth it to save her that day only to for her to go through so much pain and anguish since then? Um, I and I didn't. I didn't. I didn't feel that again. I thought, like I've said earlier, my read was that it is. So as long as he keeps her calm, her throat won't close, and but he's willing to do whatever he needs to do to with her like with the knife in her throat to make her breathe once that once we reach the passive uh, point of no return and so if you take all of her going to rehab and and falling off the wagon and going to rehab as the uh metaphorical throat potentially closing and the throat closing in this case being actual death uh not him nothing he can do after that then he's doing all he can do to keep her quote calm and keep her trying to get her back to some healthy plate. Like that's how I was reading it. But in interesting, I, I had um, the way I read it, which is I think slightly different from what Ebert based on the description. I didn't read the, the review, but the way I read it was essentially that um, it seemed, and this is going to sound horrible in the way I phrase it, but I think that um, when I, explain it a little more it'll make a little more sense but it seemed like uh like um cost sunk sort of look of like he hit that moment when she was a kid where he made this decision this this life-altering decision where he decided that no matter what happened to her he was gonna make sure as as any parent would that that he would go as far as he had to go and maybe further than many people would to make sure that she stayed alive. Um, and since he made that call and with the reading in mind that we already talked about where we get to this point where he's, he's flying back and like his arc says that he's done this. And so therefore he's, he's going to continue to fight for her, even if he's exhausted. And as he says, his love has turned to steaming piss quote unquote on that plane there. He's still going through the motions of of doing it. Um, 
in my head, that became this sort of like moment of, well, I've come this far and too much blood has been spilt, metaphorically speaking, and too much tears have been shed and sweat spent on this situation. And that this key point, it's it's almost like he was resolving himself that he made this this commitment and that he whether or not he felt like it was valuable or whether or not he felt like he could continue he just had to because that was his responsibility and the burden that was on him and so it wasn't to me a sense of regret for or having saved her or like this idea of like oh if only like things had turned out better um but more just like a a tired realization that he's been doing this his whole life and he's now so far into it that he just can't put it down anymore. And I, I guess part of what sold me on that too was that I found it really interesting that the friend on the plane looks kind of similar, not like necessarily similar facial structure, but like she's got like blonde hair, she's got the same sort of somewhat narrow face, and it just it seemed like they were intentionally casting similar people types for both of those positions, and that, in my head, his experience with her was almost this conversation that he imagined he could have had with his daughter if she had gotten better, and if she had become a successful uh, whatever this other person was, law firm employee or whatever her dad's doing um but it's like she was the successful version of his daughter that he was almost seeing what could have been and that he's also being like oh, all these sunk costs and if only this had been the way uh I, i'm with you there i also another interesting thing about that conversation i think is how little recognition there is from him to her off the top she says her name. He doesn't he doesn't register. She then says like her nickname and that she used to come over to the house all the time and he doesn't register and barely registers that. And then she's like mentions her dad and he says, Oh, what's your dad do? And she says, He worked with you. Like, how do you not remember and maybe this is me, you know, maybe he was one of Three thousand lawyers in a massive it law sounded firm, like a partner thing but it sounded too, like yeah. it sounded at the very least there was like you know it was like a group of ten of them at the most or something in a small law office. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and so how do you not remember the name because she gives I believe a first and last name. So how do you not put that all together? And it just it seems like I don't I don't understand what I'm supposed to get out of that other than maybe like he is so far out of he is so far from what he was as in, in normal version of him that like, he doesn't even recognize his old life anymore. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I got, I got two readings out of it. One of them was that it, it went to reinforce the, the idea of tired old man where he's, he's seen a lot and he's been through a lot and he's emotionally, physically drained and, it's it seems it seemed to me to be this sort of recollection of like there was a distant past that almost doesn't even seem real anymore when p- people were happy and times were good and and he can't even remember that happy life anymore because it's been so long in this draining hard work and so that was like that was kind of the main reading i got off that but there was also this idea that it kind of reinforces my interpretation of him 
as a character overall, which is that he's selfish and the things he does are for himself. And of course, the person who is coming in and upsetting this entire town after a tragic event for his own benefit is the sort of person who wouldn't remember somebody who was extremely important and present in his life a long time ago because to him they weren't present or important they were just other people coming in and out of his life uh so i think either way you can look at it as a character read on who he is as a person it just depends on how you want to interpret his personality i guess fair yeah yeah that's interesting um so that finishes our section on cine <laughs> yeah yeah i like there's lots that can be talked about no no no. Uh, but but and, i feel like the important stuff and the things that really stood out to me about the cine have all kind of been covered well and i think not that this look didn't exist before this but like this is this is like this is the look of a cold like canadian drama like this look like like that is one thing you look at the kind of if you look at a few lists if you look at a few lists of the top canadian films of all time none of them are feel like hardly any of them are feel good yeah yeah. they're mostly drab depressing small community stories like this one and this look uh i mean it didn't establish that because there's been plenty from the 80s and earlier that looked great but like this this look is is an iconic look for that and i think they achieved what they were setting out to do i think the few subtle things they did oh the one thing i wanted to say and it's something we've touched on in another episode we've already recorded but might not come out before this one uh but is the how they played the bus crash when you finally see the bus crash right yeah is played third person over the shoulder of the father and i that is maybe the most heartbreaking like the way you would be if if uh, i think even agoyan says this in one of the interviews the cbc one i listened to he says if this movie was tested because it was a canadian independent film it never had to go through a testing process but he's like he's like from my experience with testing films if this movie got tested there would have been a note from either a network person or someone in a focus group that wanted to see the poor children like clamoring to get out of the bus like that they like that would have been the emotional note they wanted to play there and i think the way they played it is potentially again because of that whole cinema of the mind thing that you that you're giving the audience here is like is yeah we we know the result we've already heard the result so there's a bit of a dramatic irony anyways when we're eventually going to see it because we know what happens but there's still that tension of you don't know when it's going to happen and yeah. it keeps coming back to this this particular timeline. Yeah, exactly. And that but but it and it's then we're when we're play but I mean when we're playing that over the shoulder you can only you're then because his shoulders in the frame at least to start it I think we push over and then we I think it makes a clear frame it uh and then eventually you go into that big wide after of the bus on the lake going under but yeah but, but the whole incident is through the eyes of the person who is currently um and therefore when you're witnessing it you're witnessing it with the intention or the what a, the the nightmare that would be going through that father's mind in es- that moment especially because we've seen and it wasn't that long beforehand in terms of time code for the movie I don't know specifically how long before, but there's this beautiful shot of like the sun is out and you're just seeing Nicole and um, uh, the hotel owner's kid who I 
can't think of the name of but yeah, they has the learning they, disability yeah yeah um and you just uh, or or no 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 it wasn't him it was a shot of of nicole and then bear and bears on the seat behind her leaning forward and you've just got this shot of them and then all the kids in the bus from the front and it's like sunny it's warm it's nice it's like they're all happy and laughing and you get this like snapshot to remember them by essentially and then not long after that shot um maybe it's longer than i'm remembering but there's this this memorial snapshot and then when the event happens you're not privy to what's going on in their head you're not privy to any of that because you've got this the snapshot of what they were and then you've got what they have become which is a distant ghost a memory of what they could have been yeah and also this story is told through the eyes of of nicole and mitchell and Nicole, at least from the viewer, from the audience point of view, never tells the story of what happened in the bus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When they were on the ice. Uh, she, the only time she mentions the thing is again at the end when she talks about the speedometer. But like, she doesn't put you, she doesn't place us in the bus at any time. Um, and none of the people that, uh, nobody else would have known what happened on the, the, or I guess the bus driver. But again, she doesn't really talk about it. So none of us, none of the characters inform the audience, inform Mitchell and therefore the audience of, of the interior of the bus. So it would have felt like a, it almost would have felt like a cheap ploy and like a exploitation of like, the of, death of 14 of kids. Four, 14 kids Which to like also, get inside and see them hammering against the glass or whatever as the bus slowly submerges like i don't want to ever have that image no in well my head. especially considering that it's it's made very clear in pop culture and in the whatever like we know this is a movie about a real event and and it's much more respectful of the people who were involved in that event and the the, the families affected and the and whatever else to not turn it into a giant spectacle and just make it this sort of um not necessarily subdued but kind of subdued event that you're like well we're not we're not gonna revel in and live in this traumatic experience that people actually experienced we're gonna we're gonna just in extract that emotion from you in other ways quite effectively too and and i think um be and i think it's a little bit because the the how it happened while that's what everyone's investigating or i guess yeah the why the why and how it happened uh it's more the after effects than 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 it is the actual event of it sinking like cracking through the ice yeah like it the moment it goes off the road is the is the flashpoint and then the next flashpoint is everything after the results the rest of it doesn't matter for the important point for the story and the characters is the thing occurred yeah and um and uh but there that is a major change apparently from the book in the book the accident is depicted much earlier in the book oh interesting and agoyan pushed it to much later in the film and i think that's uh that's it, it because it's not a tease by any means like i'm not i wasn't hoping to see it and i wasn't no. like it's a, um, it's a tension builder because you, unless you've seen it before or unless you know the material that it's based on, you don't really know what the accident is. All you know is that there was an accident and things happened. And as you go through, you get a bit more and a bit more and a bit more. And, 
and it builds this sort of internal tension because at one at a point you like you want to see it be only because you want to know you want this suspense this sort of mystery of of what happened and and what's disrupting things to be known to you so it's not a mystery but you're also afraid to get there because you don't really want to see it yeah and and i guess yeah you do want to see you want to see if there's any if there if anybody's been lying you want to see if if she swerves if she's dolores being she in that case um but it's um oh uh yeah no i i I think i agree with you on that and then i would but i just want to also ask um because i don't think we've talked about Dolores near enough because I think no we for have. one of the side characters she really she brings the heat in this um Gabrielle Rose great Canadian actress um I've worked with her personally she's a f- beautiful lovely human being that is amazing uh and really talented and I often wondered when I was working on early stuff whether you can tell like on the day watching an actor act whether it's a really good performance or not and I were I was lucky enough to work with her within the first few years of my uh, time in this industry, and yes, you can tell. <laughs> You're like, oh, oh, that's what it means to have like gravitas and yeah. like to have some weight and depth to the words you're speaking. Yeah, and um, like and- like as much as as much as she is the character who is determined to be quote unquote at fault in in a sense, you know, it it, it whether or not the lies and the truth and. And at the end of the day, we don't really know what happened fully, what caused it or whatever. We just have different people's perspectives on it. But despite all of that, um, she is all, does such a good job of, of emp- uh, not uh, how do you phrase that, of inciting empathy. I don't know. That's a weird way to word that. But like you're empathetic towards her as a character who is clearly traumatized by what's happened and 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 the fact that well, nobody blames her openly also helps but they, i don't know she re- really really sells that role and drives so much of the emotional core even without as much screen time as most other characters well i and i think that uh empathy that she's able to derive from the audience comes from from what you've just mentioned there which is none of the other characters blame her the only person we see blame her is herself yeah, and in, yeah. and she and and she doesn't even have to do it openly. All it takes is that one scene where she's talking about um, um, how she doesn't have those mornings as long as she had her bus, and then she can't almost can't even finish talking about well, having her kids. And you just see exactly what she feels and know exactly what's going on in her brain without her having to even say it. But it's and it's the brilliance in the dialogue. And I and I, I, I'm not familiar with the book enough to know if this is verbatim from the book. But that line where she has um, where she's talking to Mitchell when he's interviewing her and she asks, um, "Was I speeding?" Or like she questions, "How him. do I prove it?" Or whatever. Yeah. Well, but. And he and he's like, relax. He was driving behind the whole time. We'll be able to keep like he'll he'll testify that you weren't speeding. He follows you every morning. Yada yada yada. But the fact like, but her question goes to her self doubt and goes to all of the days or weeks that since the accident to now that the game that she's been playing in her head where like. No, I didn't do anything wrong. I picked up. I love these children. I picked them up the same way I do every day. Nothing different. Was there something? Di- 
wait a like and you start and like and those creep that creeps in creeps creeps in and uh but also again like contextually if you had a different score underneath that scene uh her her interview scene where the one that her husband ultimately ends when he gets very angry mm-hmm. um i feel like there's there like she almost like she comes across as like but what by like modern city folk or whatever we would think <laughs> is like like kind of creepy like she she refers to the the kids as like berries that ready to be plucked like that she picks and puts her in her basket and like that's kind of a sweet metaphor but like if you're berry picking you get like you get berry juice all over your fingers and like <laughs> and like you know uh, i don't know like it's i don't i don't under i didn't really get that metaphor i guess i uh, like i it felt weird and wrong to me and the fact that like she has no kids maybe clearly wanted to have children loves children but then like has pictures of the children she drives to school and i guess of the community but even still like it seems very strange to coat your house with pictures of 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 young people from your community even if you have a relationship with them that you drive them to school every day it just i don't know and maybe i'm reading too much into it because of all like the other ancestral relationships and the other uh or relationship and the other like and just but the, like the other shitty things that people are yeah, doing or... and it's just and it and i'm not saying like necessarily that there there's any like sexual connotations to her her stuff but like it just there seems to be this over attachment or something that it just i guess i guess there's an interpretation factor to that um because i didn't really get that sense the first couple times i saw the movie but coming back to it again um i definitely got a sense that that sort of subtext was there and could be interpreted in the sense that I sort of got this kind of needy and and overly connected, like this the sort of person who likes to be involved in everybody else's life, and the sort of person who, kind of stereotypically small town world, is is t- uh, doesn't have as much of an idea of personal boundaries and space and privacy as perhaps other people do, um, and depending on how you view that you may interpret it differently and in, in in the way i looked at it i just felt that she was she was missing something in her life that driving these kids to school and having these sort of relationships with all these people and being so integrated into so many families lives she was gaining this sort of sense of purpose and and uh direction out of it and that um perhaps that led her to be a little more invested and engaged in that relationship than maybe the other people were. And so you felt more that way, but I agree. Also the Barry metaphor was a little bit weird and I think it's meant to be like, I think Mitchell is supposed to be sitting there being like, "Mm, I don't know. Is this something that maybe means I should wonder about how we testify with her? Well, and the reason I bumped on it this time is because Mitchell's character asks her to repeat herself or like questions the metaphor. and, And then she continues with it. But because he, who is standing in for us in, in those interviews, the audience, um bumps on it i bumped on it i guess and and yeah and you're right she like i think um 
what yeah what what we're seeing with her be, between the flashbacks and the present day um is her having lost her purpose in life and then um i feel like the final uh um scene of the film that is uh mitchell stevens getting off the plane in the city where his daughter is only to see uh, only to see uh dolores driving the airport bus or whatever that bus yeah short bus like she's moved somewhere else and had to take up driving elsewhere yeah and she's not she can't drive and so you can read a lot into that like so because she got the blame a little bit like in the lie or fully in the lie that uh that Nicole says, um, we don't know if that hurt her, like, like legally, like, or did she just, was she just can't live in that community anymore because now everyone or half the people suspect her. So she's moved, had to start a new life, but she's like, she can drive a bus. That's what she can do. But she can't, I don't know if she can't drive children anymore or she doesn't want to drive children anymore. And she has this like smiley demeanor, and then when she sees Mitchell, she like like her shoulders slump, and she her smile dies a little bit. It's like it had been two years, and she was finally forgetting. And then he shows up and brings back a yeah. flood of memories that she didn't. And want I to think I don't about. know like I don't know that she would blame him for how it worked out for her, but she she was very worried about getting blamed and ultimately proving correct that she got the blame. And he insisted the whole time that there's no way you can get the blame. And then she does. So I don't like, yeah. And I, or I don't know that like, because what does his face say to you? Do you, is it, do you think he's off put that she's driving a bus again? Or I I felt like it was sort of the, the vibe I got. And there's like, there's so the, the movie's open-ended on purpose. And it's, again, it seems to be one of those moments of, however you felt about these characters kind of lends towards how you want to see them end, obviously, as that is how movies tend to be. Um, And I guess to me, I felt this sort of like strange, um, I guess, connection between them there where they both recognized in looking at each other that they've shared this sort of common relationship, this common experience that, didn't turn out well for either of them although like clearly it didn't turn out well for one more so than the other but um but there's this sense of of almost like remorse i kind of felt of both of them having forgotten or at least moved past this whole thing seeing each other are both reminded of and while not wanting to be involved with or think about also both had this sort of shared um, negative experience that they're flashing between each other as they cross their cross their paths in this chaotic moment. Yeah. Um, that's a fair read. Uh, yeah. Um, I think we should move on to the final. Yeah. Questions. Yeah. I don't, I don't think I have much else. Um, I mean, there's maybe little things like I guess there was one one shot that I forgot to mention at the top of when we were talking about camera work of when um, uh, Sam and, and Nicole are going to the her her not her testimony, her um, deposition deposition. That's the word. Uh, there's this great sort of like camera pan 
or not pan, sorry, dolly, where it's where it's tracking across and we see him in the front seat and it's intentionally hiding the passenger seat so we can't see Nicole there. But then it comes over and she's not there and you're like, oh, wait, did she suddenly say no? Is she not doing this? What's going on? And then it keeps going and then it comes back around and you see her in the corner in the back seat down below. And it was just this sort of beautiful build of, of internal tension of, keeping you on edge and making you wonder as you go through in just a single camera move it was just this great little artful uh uh construction of a shot that i really liked yeah and i it is it is that whole thing like this movie does that really well um building unease and tension by holding on people's faces or shots even some of the establishers i felt they held on to for almost a second or two too Mm -hmm, long mm mm-hmm which overall, I think, lent to this sense I got of, you know, the movie is a drama. The movie is, uh, uh, well, the movie is, is, is essentially a drama. But there's this continuous undertone vibe of, of like, psychological, thrillery, horror-y sort of tone that, like, doesn't take over the movie. But every, every now and again, you get this sort of creepy, um, I don't know, Dead Ringers or, or Exotica vibe of the world's not right here. Uh, and you want to be afraid, but you don't know what to be afraid of or why or where to take that. Yeah, and and maybe I'm wrong about those um, establishers, and it was just everything around it. But it, like all well, the music too. But yeah, and but I mean, um, but I think that's a really like if they did do what I thought they did, which is hold on those a little long. That's such an interesting filmmaking way to create unease, because giving people like an extra few seconds on what is like. Most people have internalized that movie language of what and how long we stay on an establisher to know, okay, we're in this apartment building when we jump in to the apartment scene we're about to see, or cop shop, or whatever, wherever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, and then uh, the other thing, uh, the only other little thing I wanted to add was that um, uh, Sir, the great Syrian home was amazing in this movie. Oh, uh, yes. But... Uh, until very late in pre-production, uh, his part was had been uh, uh, given to Donald Sutherland. Yes, that's which right. Which would have made this an all-Canadian cast, I think. Which would have been... I, I mean, I, I would have totally been behind that. I, 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 love, I, love, I love Ian Holm. I think his yeah. work is fantastic, and I'm very happy that he filled that role, and... You know, he did it very well, but I could 100% see that being a Donald it Sutherland was, thing. It was one of those, like casting what ifs that i saw that i was like oh man this guy killed it but also i think he would have killed it in a different way and i mean if this is and i think this is one of agoyan's personal favorite movies he's ever made um so i don't think he would go back and change it anything but um i would i would love to have seen this movie with donald sutherland in that lawyer role because i don't know i think there's there's something about Ian Holm to me has a vibe that is much more grandfatherly and much more like uh, friendly old man in a lot of ways. And maybe it's just in the way he speaks and the tone of his voice. Or yeah. maybe it's because the first thing I've ever seen Frodo. him in was, was Bilbo yeah, 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 in, in The Bilbo. Fellowship of the Ring. And so I get this sort of yeah. connection all the time. But that yeah. to me is what I felt is that like part warm sort of, you know, well-meaning old grandfather and part you know kind of 
uh, yeah. skeezy lawyer a little bit. And but. and yeah, whereas my first impression of him was aliens and and oh yeah, fair. Anyways, that I would have loved to. That's a casting what if that I would. It would have been super interesting. I would have I would have loved them to have shot like shoot the scene with home and then okay cut and then we nailed it. All right, let's uh, run, moving on. Let's run and Donald then, Sutherland like, in and just... Donald Sutherland replay the scene, <laughs> shoot all his coverage with Sutherland, just so I could watch both movies. That would be hilarious. Because um, I, I just, uh, yeah, ones for the Canadian viewer, <laughs> ones and ones for the, world. for the international, international viewers. <laughs> um, yeah, no, okay. Well, all right. So, shall we move on to our questions? Yeah, and so I'll start with asking you if you feel like you need to be in a particular mood to watch this movie. Um, I don't, I think I could probably watch it in any state and I would certainly alter the way I was feeling, but it wouldn't present a wall to me that would make me not want to watch it in certain circumstances or others, but I can, but I can understand why a lot of people would struggle, um, in the same way that. I'm sure people would struggle to watch Exotica in certain moods because it's so fucking out there and the characters are greasy. And, like, like there's so many things about it that, like, you have to be prepared to deal with it unless you're someone like me who just is like, I love this shit and I'm just going to watch it because it's great. Yeah, I mean, it like, describing moods for films, I often use a, a food metaphor. Maybe it's because I'm a chubby dude, but uh, <laughs> um, it's, like, this isn't the snack you've got to want to settle in for a meal like with multiple courses and you've got to. So if you're not in the mood to do some work, like mental exercise, when you're watching this, if, if you want an easy light movie, it's th- not, the this one. is not the mood to want to watch this film. It's not that it's, um, it's, it's like, this is a very, very dark film. It, it starts, um, ominously i guess because it doesn't start and necessarily bad but it starts by the time we see ian home where he's talking to a, a drug 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 addict daughter and Which, by the way the next time we see him he's i i just realized that i didn't say this but it, it lends to that opening ominousness is that uh he walks into a hotel and the person's like, oh, is it raining outside? And he says, oh, no, I had an accident. He says to the person living in the town that just had an accident involving a lake. And he's like, that's just either the most insensitive and thoughtless thing you could say. Yeah. Or or else, like, I don't know. That, yeah, is, what, that like, is what it is. What a, what a better, like, isn't a better icebreaker if you're trying to <laughs> get in with these people? Icebreaker. Oh, that's also a bad choice. <laughs> but isn't the better one to say, like, crazy story, got caught in this car wash no one couldn't get a hold like that gives you this little anecdote to get these people drawn into you as a character yeah it warms things up sympathize with who you are and then open up more i mean as it turns out they tell him the dirty laundry of everybody in town or the supposed dirty laundry of everyone in town um but, but yeah, yeah so i i would say in conclusion that you do you sh- i th- i think against what you think but i think you do need to be in a mood to see i think you need to be like I said, you need to be in a mood to do some, like some in, mental work, some intellectual yeah. work. Like I think there's some, like if you're not ready to do some critical thinking while watching this movie, then 
you're the, probably not going to enjoy the experience. You're, you That's won't, probably fair. Yeah, you will not enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. I, would, I would venture to say you won't enjoy it. I don't think... I, like on a surface level, like watching this while doing something in the kitchen or like watching this while you're doing some other activity, I think would take away from your experience of the film to such a degree you probably wouldn't enjoy it. So make sure you have the you have the you have the time and energy to sit down and, and watch this because the other thing is it's it's surprisingly long. Yeah, it's only like an hour and a half. Oh, is it? Isn't it? I thought. Oh, I thought it was. I thought it was closer to a two-hour runtime. Um, uh, maybe I could uh, be wrong. Actually, we should look into that. <laughs> um, but maybe while you're uh, googling the runtime, 112 minutes. So it is almost two hours. Yeah. So it 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 and it. I mean, I don't mean to see, say it felt it like it feels like it drags, but it you feel the time you spend with these people. If if only because it is a larger period of time that you're in a state of like empathetic empathy towards like a strong emotional condition, and so therefore more time spent there means Honestly, more mental drain. From the daddy daddy, the two daddies yeah. uh, parallel at the start. From then on, my stomach was in like a like up towards my throat kind of thing. Like I was just there was a a tension. Like I I I don't think I was squeezing my fists, but. Mentally, I was squeezing my fist. Yeah, I, I guess, I guess, I, I would say that I agree, and I think the reason I don't think it's a movie that you need to be in the mood for is only because when I watch movies like this, regardless of where I, my place and time is, I sort of end up making it about the movie and about that mood, and that my state changes to match right. the film I'm watching, rather than it being about. Um, so I, I yeah I think you're probably right. I think you do need to be in a mood only because I change my mood to match where the movie rather than sure. fitting the movie. And the that's mood a, in this yeah instance. that's I I I don't have that yeah. control over my emotions. <laughs> 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 uh, so I guess the next question we ask is this a film uh, uh, like that you would revisit rewatch? Is this a movie you would? Uh, you would, yeah, venture to see more than once. Yes, but not frequently. Like other Adam McGowan movies I've watched, it's not the kind of movie that you I watch back to back. I did hear for this show, uh, for this episode, I watched it twice in a couple of days. But if I was watching it for my own enjoyment, it would not be a frequently recurring watch. It would be a, a coming back to, to re-experience it at a time when it's faded a bit. I would also say, yeah. So I would say that's a good note. And I would also say that another reason to revisit it is because as you, as a person grow and change and intellectually like, uh, expand your worldview, this movie has slightly different things to say. Like you said earlier, there is so much room for interpretation. Like if we if we are doing this podcast in ten years, we should just as a thought experiment revisit this film and see how much it differs from our read now. You know that yeah, I Be mean because there's so like, many layers to it and so many open ended questions that leave you and your brain space the yeah. source of of however the experience goes yeah like in the 90s you know there was talk shows openly discussing child abuse and and that kind of thing but that that was really new and fresh still yeah. so like a view of this in the 90s is is one thing nowadays it's it's 
it's so prevalent in, in the world and therefore so prevalent in the art that reflects the world. Anytime you see a father look at a daughter with a weird eye in a movie now, I'm always like, what's going on there? Like, Yeah, yeah. Well, there, there's certainly like the openness of conversation towards these things, which is overall really important and, and valuable also does lead to that kind of suspicious approach to to the writing where you're wondering hey what what are these characters really thinking and because i i truly like i said i truly the first time i watched this movie so i this came out in 97 i probably saw it on home video in 98 or 99 and so that puts me at 15 16 years old yeah okay yeah and um yeah and that the the that the whole that whole incest thing that storyline until it's shown to you on camera didn't uh didn't register in my like i wasn't even thinking about it i was just yeah. like oh okay and like and i didn't i don't think i remember it being creepy the clothes scene like here take some sweaters for my dead wife because she's also trying on the dead wife's clothes alone by herself before he gets back See, I wasn't, I didn't know if that was what that was or not. I saw her trying on that or putting on that she puts dress on and nightgown or whatever, but I didn't know if thing. that was the the mother's clothes or if that was just her. But I, so I, I was misplayed. I didn't know where that scene was and why. So yeah, I and, like I that. And so sense. it's like this, it's this intro, like, and none of that registers as creepy, but like looking back on it now and thinking about like the emotional scars of her, because this is before she has her transition to being like, um to understanding her plight and and the abuse she's faced like the by having this uh misfortune and this accident happen to her it opens her eyes to this uh worse thing that has been this like death by a thousand cuts uh thing that's been happening to her and so um yeah, sorry, what you were gonna say? No, no, that was I'm just I'm just agreeing with you, uh, nodding away here. Like, I yeah, I don't have much else to add to that. But, yeah, so but it, it, so when she's still in the the fog of the innocence of what she's doing, um, as we discussed, probably subconsciously she knows is or, or feels is wrong, but on the surface level, she's a happy-go-lucky young girl, and trying on trying on the clothes of the 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 um the de- the 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 wife who's passed um it it is this like uh substitute the standing in for we always do this in these questions where i then think about things that would have been and then we cool. start going back to it but 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 it's true i mean there's definitely a connection there with like you know she's she's experiencing this relationship with her own father that is uh this sort of tra- traumatic and sort of abusive relationship and now her like we talked about or the idea of her relationship to every other older man could have easily been um skewed by this sort of father relationship and now she's putting herself in the vein or in the clothing of a person who would have a similar connection to some other person that is of the same yeah and and even further to that scene just thinking on it now but like a slight critical read of the way she puts on the dress is interesting because it's not the way i mean i don't know and this is different and maybe the door's open she's watching kids she's trying not to get caught and all this stuff but like i take off my clothes and i put on the new clothes but she does this like 
she takes off her top, pulls that over, but leaves her jeans on. And then she takes the jeans as almost like she's morphing into it as opposed to like a full step into it. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, and, there's the practical aspect of like asking a teenager to almost be naked on camera. It makes for very complicated filmmaking and it's much easier for the whole production and for her own comfort for her to not have to do that. But there is also there's that a, read where you're... But there's a bunch of other ways to show a changing yeah, scene yeah. where you aren't showing nudity and you aren't placing her in an uncomfortable position. But like, you're still I, suggesting uh, the way n- most people yeah, dress. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, like the the easy way is you show her, put the... you In the close-up, the shirt comes over her face and then you see her wiggling shoulders up, whatever, shimmying yeah. and stuff. And then you cut back to the wide and she's in the clothes. And... and uh, but yeah, anyway, because she even like she pats it down on her stomach. I don't know. Like it's there, it, it's, it's there's something more there that I'm I'm not tuned into enough to see yet. But maybe when but it, I revisit it, there's an this, intention. There is an intentionality there that seems to be beyond just a practicality of production um, that, you know, discussion about like a fear of being caught or a fear of being watched or this idea at, yeah, there's, there's, that's actually something, the fear of being watched. I didn't think like maybe she's so uncomfortable now getting naked at all, like in her own home, even that that's how she changes at home from her nightgown to her clothes is she keeps parts covered while she puts the other stuff on. Because which we don't get a chance to see. If no, that's no, no. The case, but there's a suggestion. But like that, that suggestion for it is interesting. Like, yeah. Anyways, I, there's a lot to explore, which that is we why this get is. Into in a but no, but this like is this, why but, to yeah. this is why it is like revisit this film, like years apart, but down the road, come back to this film every once in a while because I think it says a lot. And you'll and, you'll take something different out of it each time. And I and I think that's the case. Now, having said that, is this like I think we both know the answer to this, but is this move is this a movie that if if it's not on your shelf or it's not on your like the easiest the only streaming service you belong to or whatever, would you seek this out elsewhere? Would you would you actively take the time to go look for this, to rent it from somewhere, to to find the streaming services on and get the 15 day free trial or whatever. And yeah, I mean, so first things first, that literally is the case. Um, at least for me, it, the only place I could find it available was the criterion streaming service. I could not find the movie anywhere else. I don't own it, unfortunately. Um, but unless you own it or you've purchased it or you somehow have, uh, access to a physical copy of it, uh, the only place to really get a hold of it streaming-wise or e- accessibly is through Criterion. And I had been, for a long time, considering, as soon as I heard that there was a Criterion streaming service, I was like, I should get that, you know? And I was putting it off and putting it off, and then we did this episode, and I was like, you know what, this is the moment. I'm just I'm just going to subscribe to it. Um, so my answer is, yeah, it, it's definitely a seek-out type movie. I think that if you have interest in the canadian filmmaking scene or if you have interest in filmmaking in general in terms of movies that are not just uh mainstream and you want something that's more engaging at all um or even just horizon broadening i think that like it is a movie that is is very much a pivotal component of like a you should watch this before you die list yeah and and from the canadian aspect I think this is an extremely Canadian film 
It's the first time I ever watched a movie where I felt like I knew where I was. Yeah. You know, like I felt like it, it was like it's shot in Canada. So it's like it's recognizable. Play, it's place I've been, whatever as well. But like I felt like somewhat at home and somewhat like I knew where I was. And it was recognizably, definably Canadian to someone who's Canadian and not just a stereotype. And that the final, like specifically, and actually Roger Ebert mentions this in his uh, review, but that final uh, deposition hall is, it's like, in my head, it's their legion in their town. It looks like a legion. That's the vibe I got. And so like, and that, uh, like the legion hall, because there's also probably a legion bar attached to it. somewhere attached to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a small town. They're probably the same space. That's, (laughs) but like the tables they use are temporary because it's a multi-use space. Um, Roger Deaver points out, and I didn't notice, but one of the corners has a foosball table in the deposition room. I didn't notice that either. And, but that's what's in those rooms, right? You go in these small communities, it's this multi-purpose room. There's fold-up chairs that are stacked against the wall or under a stage or something, and tables and blah, and they, uh, and what, depending on what you're doing in there that day, you set up some tables to reflect that. Um, oh, and having said that, just because we're talking about that scene, um, I remember being very confused as to what that thing the stenographer has yeah, over her yeah, mouth yeah. is. But that is a, essentially a cone of silence. It's a so the stenographer slash, can yeah. make notes uh, verbally to themselves so that later when they're typing everything up that they have the proper notations and whatever else. Yeah, yeah. I uh, it took me a couple of shots. I was sitting there staring at it, like, "Why does what what's going on here?" But I eventually figured it out and was uh, very proud of myself when later I realized that uh, it's a common question. So yeah, because I I also put it together this time watching, going, "Oh, I bet you I know what that is. That's the stenographer, and they're doing notes to themselves or speaking or something." And then, yeah, on IMDb, it's the first piece of <laughs> trivia is Adam Agoyan on the DVD commentary says this about it. The Cone of Silence. <laughs> if it's not called that, it really should be. It's the perfect name. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah. And I also, to go along with seeking it out, um, there is what looks like a VHS rip on YouTube. Oh, is there? <laughs> so if you hate the film going experience <laughs> and you want to watch it in the worst possible quality, go for that. Not just the worst possible quality as far as like which medium it's from, but also like ripped off the worst possible quality and uploaded at the lowest. Po- like, yeah. oh my God. Like, but also the thing with VHS, like, I mean, looking like if you put a brand new one in it, you might be able to still tell the difference. But when I was a kid, like it looked awesome. Like it looked like the same as going to watching a theater, like to my, uh, to my untrained eyes. Because and, that's the best, you know, probably. Yeah, but, I, but I mean, the theaters were playing, you know, 35 mil prints and it, to me, it looked almost as good as the home video stuff looked. Um, but for whatever reason, a it doesn't hold, it seem to hold well. Multi use, it, do, it doesn't age anyways. But the, like, the magnetic tape the, fades. What, however, the ripping process of VHS to digital has, like, the amateur version of that has led to people with the understanding that VHS was like much worse like than it eight, actually eight was. Bit technology, like, like, yeah. <laughs> that it looked like block, like block hands and stuff. Like it, every single VHS has that line that shows up all the time. And yeah, like, yeah, exactly. 
Um, Whereas, like, really, it's a lot more about how many times was it copied off the original positive versus how many times was it ripped onto, like, different VHSs and slowly lowering its resolution time after time and and aging of tape. and A lot of it is home videos, which uh, I want actually is where I kind of wanted to finish because Agoyan in that interview has some interesting stuff about it. But home videos were tapes that you filmed a vacation on and then either you or your or you brought it into someone who would put it onto a like take it from the eight millimeter little tape that you put in the side of it to put or whatever it was called. I don't even remember. And then they would tape it onto a VHS so you and your family could watch it in your VCR. And um, so, acronyms that some people probably don't even recognize. <laughs> and anymore. then you would and then you, but you would re-record over that tape after like the master. You would record over the master because you now have it on VHS. So what? Why? So, why keep it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and because this is what fits in the in the camera, and that costs X number of dollars, where a VHS tape costs much less. So you would re-record over that over and over and over, and ultimately that's why some home videos would get that VHS look. Yeah, or that, yeah, oh, that yeah. Look. Anyway, uh, that's neither here nor there. But I uh, I did want to mention finally that um, Adam Agoyan talks about uh, thematically. Um, video, the rise of video was a very big deal for him um, because of the freedom it gave artists, but also with that freedom came, came negativity, came, came surveillance, came uh, like voyeur, right? And so he has this like relationship with video in his films that it's, 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 it's what it's the context of the user and in every one of his movies he says that he has video use in it and in this we see it in the hands of mitchell specifically filming that bus at night yeah 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 um but and i started to think about because agoyan talks about how it's so important to him and i was like okay well what's he trying to say why okay why didn't he film it in the in the day well maybe the bus looks like tells his narrative better at, when you see it at night because it plays creepier. It plays, or maybe he's hiding because he knows that someone like Billy wouldn't appreciate him being there. Sure, but then if you're to do that, yeah, and and maybe getting there in the daytime, Billy's in his shop all day, so it's hard. But also, turning a light on in a bus at night that's all open, true, true. isn't exactly, and he has a little light on the top of his camera. So it's not exactly like he's doing a great job hiding. <laughs> no, no. Um, but he does, you know, he actively hides until he doesn't. And then, and that scene, by the way, is still one of the most powerful. The, the yeah. confrontation at the yeah, back of the yeah. bus is really interesting. It's, it's not like there's a proper antagonist necessarily in the film. It's, but if there was one, Billy's as close as you're going to get in the sense of, of working to, uh, uh, negate or or but prevent the actions of art. i was on his side kind of like yeah, i was that's, like that's, i, I guess... was like this is a case where you want to get paid because you're angry sure but like this is truly like might have been a faultless accident like it was just misfortune it was just a bad well and that's that's kind of what i mean by there isn't really an antagonist is that like if you put a gun to my head and said hey you got to pick wh- who the protagonist and the antagonist are i'd have to give you names but the movie doesn't pick sides. The movie isn't naming an antagonist. It's just people. And there's this great quote that I felt like summed the whole uh, approach of that in the film. And it's 
it's when when Mitchell's talking to uh, Nicole about about the deposition and about whatever, and he's like, "That's the way you have to think of think of it, Nicole. Is people doing their jobs? There's no good guys and bad guys. There's just our side and their side, and that really nicely encapsulates." the way the movie treats its characters. There's just different perspectives on the same problem, and it's people trying to come to terms with their own side of it. Yeah, like grief, obviously, and everyone's reaction and everyone's process of grief is, and including Mitchell, right? Yeah, yeah. Because he's grieving the loss of his marriage, the loss of his daughter, who he said he claims to... Claims to be dead to him as dead, it is. Yeah, and um, yeah, so that... And, and I think also, though, that that thematically sums up a lot of Agoyan's work um, that there's no good guys and bad guys. There's just people doing their, what is it? People doing their jobs just, or just, whatever. It, it's just people doing their jobs. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I don't know that that's, I don't mean people. Jobs is not necessarily yeah. the right word in all of his movies, but the substitute with, with know, whatever jobs. Surviving, is, doing their yeah, thing. Yeah. Yeah. Existing, yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think that it like, I, and then the more you look into drama and the more you look into great storytelling, like, um, it is just that it is just people reacting to circumstance in the way that their life has informed them to do so. If you've written good character and you've written a good story, you should be able to take any side of an argument and understand why a person is doing what they're doing and see it through their eyes in such a way that they become the protagonist. Because at the end of the day, everybody is the hero of their own story and everybody is just doing whatever they have to do and whatever they think is best for their situation. Um, and it's one of the biggest, I don't know, problems with character building and development in a lot of mainstream movies overall is that there is this dichotomy where there is somebody who is just evil because or like there is somebody who is the bad guy definitively and it often isn't um very well fleshed out which is also why i loved to go slightly on a different trend why i loved infinity war and endgame so much and why I think a lot of people butted up against it because they had to think about it and there wasn't a clear bad guy that they could root against and there wasn't a clear path by which the characters who have their flaws find redemption and are resolved and are definitively good guys because at the end of the day, you can argue for the other side actively. And those are, the, to me, the most powerful and meaningful movies that have characters like that and are sometimes too lacking yeah and i and i don't necessarily agree i think the philosophical thought is uh determinism uh, i don't necessarily agree with ne like everything it suggests but the the idea i think of de behind determinism and i could be wrong it, it might be misnaming it but is um you know as you live your life each decision you make further locks you into the next decision you're going to make. And ultimately, there's no such thing as fate or free will. Everything it, because, is as it was going to be because, you're, because every choice you make you is are influenced the, by yeah, the rest of your life. The next choice you make is influenced by every choice you've made, but therefore can only be one certain thing. So you're locked. There's up. really only one choice you're, you're, we're despite all, feeling like you're We are all choice. trains on tracks. And we're made to feel like we're on a road where we can turn and change, but like we are on the rail, we're on a railroad, we're on a fixed road that we can't get off of. And, uh, and I wait, think wait, without making a choice that is clearly not 
the right one for where your situation is. Uh, in yeah, ways. Uh, exactly. And I, but I think that when you write characters to that, to, to the deterministic view of, of, of when we meet them in a story, I feel like it really fleshes a character out more because then the choices they're making aren't good or bad or, 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 or good or evil or whatever. They're necessary. They, they are what that person will always choose in that situation because of everything they've done in their life. The, what and what's been done to them. I mean, you know, it, I, to use a pop culture reference and talk about Thanos again for a second, just to like wrap that point up, is that it's totally his situation too of like he watches his entire, you know, species essentially annihilated because of the same thing that everybody else in the universe is doing. And he sees himself as the only one who can fix it. And what's the choice? Well, we resolve the issue the only way he can resolve it himself, uh, you know, for the greater good of everyone. And, and he will make that choice every time, even if it's uh, considered wrong by most people. There's a right to it as well. But it like it's also like that's the logical endpoint of <laughs> environmentalism in well, a way, also, right? Yes, because like and and, you know, uh, I want the planet to continue and live on and, and all of that. And like, and I, I mean, I'm not the mo like, I'm not out on picket lines or out on a boat with Greenpeace or anything, but like, I care about the environment. And I think a lot of, a lot of like younger modern people perhaps do. Um, uh, um, but that like, if you're, to, if you were to write a villain uh, who is uh, someone who is, like who has a Thanos like ideology on the world, you can easily make their ideology a green uh, environmental policy that is just taken to the extreme, right? Because because it's scientifically, if we were to half our population, the world would recover very quickly from a lot of the damage we're causing to it. Yeah, I mean the recovery that happened when COVID shut everything down for three months was insane. Yeah, based yeah. on like some of the statistics I was reading, anyways. So. Yeah, so I think that's a good place to uh, not to cut off that uh, tangent there, but we're getting quite long now, and uh, it's probably time to wrap this bad boy up. Um, so before we go, what is your rating for this movie, Mike? Oh, geez. Um, I'm going to give it six tragically hips. Oh, dang. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. I don't know what I'd do with six tragically hips. That's like mind meltingly good. Yeah, yeah. Oof. Well, I gotta concur. Um, and I think I'm gonna have to give it thirty two cones of silence, probably. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Huh. A term we've just established that we both made up a few minutes yeah, ago. Yes, yes. But understandably connected to said thing. No, so. and yeah, and to have thirty two of them, what a what a, a production that would be. Oh, uh, wouldn't it though? So thank you guys very much for listening. We really, really appreciate it. If you uh, want to get updates on the show or uh, find out what our schedule is or just get in touch, you can find us on Instagram at Cinematics Podcast. And you can find us on Twitter at Cinematics Cast. Nailed it. Got it right this time. Sorted that out. And as always, there are spoilers in this episode. So if you don't want the movie to be spoiled, make sure you watch it before you come check out this episode. If you uh, like the show, we'd love to get a five-star review from you. It really helps our views. It helps uh, put us in good places on those platforms to get more of an audience. 
So thank you guys very much for listening, and we will catch you next time.